At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. In a minute, we'll talk about the future of the Republicans after 43 Republican senators voted Trump was not guilty of inciting the insurrection on January 6th. Trump is now dividing and weakening the Republicans, but Biden and the Democrats still have to succeed at changing things enough to win new supporters. For comment on that, we'll speak with Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America later in the show. First up, the Republicans after the second impeachment. How divided are they and how much weaker as a result? For comment and analysis, we turn to Rick Perlstein. Of course, he's the author of the new book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn 1976 to 1980. It's the best political book of the year, in my opinion. And it's the final volume of the series that began with his classic Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice and a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New York Times, Newsweek, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Well, 43 Republican senators voted Trump was not guilty of inciting the insurrection on January 6th. They had a chance to banish him, but 43 out of 50 chose to keep him. Of course, last November, he did get 74 million votes. That's more than any other candidate in American history, with one exception, Joe Biden. But but his final approval rating on January 20th was 29%. That's the lowest for any president in history. And there are some powerful forces trying to dump him now, notably Mitch McConnell. Here's the problem they face. Among 2020 Trump voters, according to a good recent poll, 66% say they're more supporters of Trump than of the Republican Party. 
40% of Trump voters said the Republicans care more about helping people make more money than helping people lead decent lives. And more than half, 54%, they would, said they would definitely support Trump in 2024 if he ran again. The Republicans have been divided before, but not like this. One of the cunning things about how Donald Trump has kind of set up this whole dynamic for his supporters is, you know, the least bit of disloyalty, you know, turns you into uh, a conspirator against him. So uh, it gives them very little wiggle room. I mean, the needle that Mitch McConnell managed to thread where he um, said Trump was guilty, but he wasn't guilty, basically. <laughs> you know, well, worthy of Jacques Derrida, right? Uh, oh, boy. Uh, I have no idea, uh, you know, whether that could possibly work. They're up against a very ironclad set of institutional facts, which is like, you know, basically it's impossible to organize outside the two-party system. You know, I mean, it's, it's the, the challenge of getting on a, a ballot if you're not a Republican or the Democrat is so prohibitive. The libertarians started doing well in Arizona, you know, in the 1990s. So they just changed the law and, you know, made you have to have like, you know, whatever, 10 times more signatures to get on the ballot, right? I saw another statistic that's mind blowing, a very complex one. The number of people saying they would like to vote for a third party or that the two parties are not serving them is the highest since Gallup has been measuring. It's something like 62%. Wow. But wow. I don't necessarily think it's the most dramatic thing that could happen to the Republican Party. Because when you think about it, you know, all through the 60s, all through the 70s, the, the Republicans basically were outvoted uh, in the House of Representatives by, you know, almost a, 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 a ratio of two to one. You know, that's the way it was between 1977 and 1981 in the House. You know, it was basically... I think 60 Democratic senators. So, you know, the Republicans have been in the wilderness before. And, you know, putting on my, you know, historian hat who, you know, hates to prognosticate about the death of anything, no one would have guessed, you know, between, you know, 1974 and 1980 that the guy who would bring the Republican Party out of the wilderness from Watergate was the one guy who refused to ever say that Nixon did anything wrong in Watergate. So I am not making any predictions. This is a set of circumstances that I don't see any precedent for. I think it's really um, one of those many, many bizarre, paradoxical concomitants of our two-party system in which basically the two parties are just kind of locked in. And, uh, you know, in any other democracy on the planet, right, you'd you'd get another party coming to the fore. You know, you would have to form some sort of coalition government. But, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are, you know, the only choices that are practical because of those structural constraints. Well, uh, some, some of our friends say this is, this is a good thing for us as long as the Trumpers and the party leadership remain strong and the party remains committed to racism and hatred of immigrants. It will continue to drive away suburban voters and in independents and college-educated voters, and this will help the Democrats get a bigger majority. And uh, 
Others of our friends say it would be a lot better for America if the Republican Party would just get rid of Trump, if we could de-Trumpify America. What what do you say? Well, there's this there. Uh, one of the tweets I, I did a couple of weeks ago that got like this explosion of support quoted Nancy Pelosi saying we need a strong Republican Party. And young people were just completely baffled by this. You know, <laughs> why would you want a strong party that's, you know, full of racists and is cruel and sadistic? And it comes from this, you know, we're, we're, we're old men, right? Uh, it comes from this kind of neo-Madisonian pluralist theory that if one party gets too strong, you know, the other party will be tempted to tyranny. I mean, the Democratic Party is like, I can't, like the, the least tyrannical political <laughs> party in the history of political parties. You know, they're so non-tyrannical that they had to make, make up a conspiracy theory that they ate babies in order to you know, get people to be frightened of them, right? But there is this idea brought in the land. I'm kind of fascinated by this idea as I kind of thought it through that it's almost like the Democratic Party is almost kind of like contains all these neo-Madisonian factions in itself and is so, you know, um, diverse, really. I mean, it has, you know, a center and even a right in a lot of ways, but when it comes to mansion and cinema, they seem to be diving for that center-right vacuum and it's got a left and it's got, you know, a liberal wing um, that, you know, the, the nation will be pretty fine with Democrats fighting it all out among themselves. You know, do we want to, you know, balance the budget by, you know, having entitlement reform or do we want to, you know, come up with entitlements, right? That's a pretty good debate, right? And it's all the way within the, the Democratic Party. So why do we need a Republican Party, right? Well, um, the alternative is to try to uh, imagine what what a post-Trump Republican Party could look like. Um, and I remember, you I'm sure you remember, the Republican post-mortem after right. uh, Mitt Romney lost to Biden in 2012, which concluded that the only way for the Republicans to regain a majority was to bring in people of color, especially Latinos, because- And it was absolutely right. They're more conservative and they're more business oriented and they had to recruit young people. And this would be a low tax, pro-business, small government party. And they even had the candidate who personified all this, Marco Rubio. Marco, John, to be fair here, the, the, a lot of the Proud Boys are in fact young and some of them are Hispanic. <laughs> well, of course, and Marco was happy to be the new Republican who was, you know, not a racist, pro-immigration reform and so on. But you remember what happened to him Him in the 2016 primaries. Trump just destroyed him. Little Marco. Remember yeah. little Marco? And remember, now, yeah. now, he, now he's a true believer. Now he's a true believer. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the people who wrote that postmortem were absolutely correct. If the Republican Party wanted a majority coalition, that's what they something like what they would have to have done. Uh, but they went a different way, which is basically to try to win without ever having a majority. There's, in fact, a counter majoritarian reactionary tradition in America that really goes back to the founding of the Constitution. Right. The South gets to keep slavery, you know, no matter how many people they have, you know, no matter how strong their economy is, no matter how much power they have vis-a-vis -vis the North. And that's basically uh, the idea that, you know, the reactionary portion of the country should rule by right, whatever their numbers, has been an article of faith first in the South, but then, you know, among reactionaries all over the country, once the Republicans became a conservative party, 
And we've had a dynamic that whenever this minority coalition not able to achieve what it wants using kind of the minoritarian parts of the constitution, it resorts to violence, right? That's what we saw in the Civil War. That's what we saw in Reconstruction. That's what we saw in the segregation of South. And that's what we saw in the Capitol on January 6th. That gets us very deep into the most basic constitutional questions of, you know, why we have a government. I mean, the constitution is basically a machine to arrive at power arrangements without force. So, you know, whatever the kind of party politics, it's, it's a very frightening situation. And sort of the middle ground for the Republicans has been, if they're going to remain the white party, is vote suppression, prevent right. people of color from voting. And that's getting harder and harder to do. But it's and it's been a project that goes back many decades, as you yourself uh, have, have written. And they're still at it. You know, uh, Trump tried to sabotage the census. And the response, once again, to the 2020 election was, you know, vote suppression bills all over the country. And, uh, you know, so they're doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on the most reactionary, non-democratic parts of their program. And uh, that's frightening, too, because these are going to create diminishing returns, especially as, you know, Joe Biden, who, you know, turns out to like have buried in the recesses of his, you know, 80-year-old brain, you know, the formula for how Democrats, you know, achieve their supermajorities after the New Deal, which is basically give people stuff, govern compassionately and well, when someone doesn't want to help you give the people infrastructure and medicine and, and money, then you tell them to, you know, go um, urinate up a rope and, uh, you know, spends, you know, tax, 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 spend, 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 elect, 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 the formula. And Joe Biden's rediscovered it. You know, he's kind of like somehow kind of turned off the, you know, austerity part of his brain. It's been kind of the dominant note of presidential politics through Carter, through Clinton, through Obama. And he's, you know, going back to Roosevelt. <laughs> so it's going to be even harder for the Republicans to achieve not only a majority, which seems inconceivable, but some kind of governing minority. And especially since in the most recent election, the turnout was unprecedented. It was yeah. incredible turnout, I think partly because of mail voting. Mail voting is the way to get millions of more people to vote. And lo and behold, you know, my sister is from Oregon, points out that they've been doing it just fine for decades. You know, there's no, there's no reason based in any kind of empirical logic that the whole country shouldn't have mail-in voting. Some of us civic, you know, kind of fetishists like the, the election day, but maybe they can have a nice little theme park where we can go vote on, you know, Tuesday. So really there's no, there's no visible path that the Republicans get back to being a, a majority party. But one of the, you know, themes of all these books I've written is whenever the Democrats win, you know, it seems like the Republican party are rocked on their heels forever. And they always managed to come back. I mean, it only took two years in 1964 because this new reactionary issue suddenly came before, which was basically, you know, open housing, you know, in the North, you know, and suddenly it turned out as, as George Wallace put it in 1964, oh my God, the whole country is Southern. So I know, you know, it's like, you know, they're maybe one Reichstag fire away from weaponizing demagogic reaction among masses of the population, but I don't really see it. 74 million people voted for Trump, but only a few thousand went yeah. to the rally on January 6th. And, and most of the people who went to the rally didn't storm the Capitol. That was only 800 people. So 
still like, you know, half of Republicans or more, you know, believe that uh, Trump actually won the election. So they can rob you with a fountain pen or they can rob you with a gun. Right. I mean, the fountain <laughs> pen wing of the Republican reaction is if you add up all the Republicans in the House and all the Republicans in the Senate who tried in some way, cast a vote in some way not to certify the election, it's a majority of members of Congress. Right. <laughs> you can't say this just, you know, a couple thousand people, you know. Um, wearing, you know, like uh, stacking caps and in, in on January 6th, this is a party that operationally, you know, agrees with the basically the military aims of that violent operation, and they're pursuing it, you know, with vote suppression. They're pursuing it uh, by um, censuring all the members of the party who dare criticize Trump. They're even on the verge of you know, censor, censoring, you know, Mitch McConnell. It seems like, you know, Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are about to have some sort of, uh, I don't know, they're going to like have uh, Derringers at 10 paces. I don't know. <laughs> but Mitt Romney has introduced a child support, uh, child, you know, allowance bill that's more generous than Joe Biden's. So very intriguing. <laughs> this is a moment, you know, of chaos and chaos throws up possibilities that were not foreseen. And of course, the great agent of chaos is, is looming out there and his children are out there and they're ready to go gung-ho for whatever 22, 2022, 2024 plans they have, you know? Yeah. Well, so there's, there's sort of the, the big picture is that the Republicans have no path to becoming a majority party, but then there's, as you say, 2022. And uh, the Republicans have a pretty good chance of recapturing the House. Uh, on the one hand, their chances are hopeless. On the other hand, they may well take over the House in two years. There's our beloved Constitution, right? And the gerrymandering, that's, uh, let's, let's not forget that's part of the minor minoritarian pattern. 2010, you know, uh, after that census, uh, the Republicans spent a very small amount of money brilliantly, you know, finding just the state legislative seats they needed in order to, you know, get kind of majorities in, in states where they had Republican majorities and governors, they were able to create situations where you could have, you know, like in Wisconsin, you know, 56% of the vote for Democratic legislative candidates, but uh, a congressional delegation that was still majority Republican, same as Pennsylvania. American politics is becoming very distorted, uh, uh, very contorted, but, you know, uh, the the pattern, right? The historical pattern is that in out years, uh, the president's party loses seats. But you know, I mean, has any pattern held true? You know, for the last you know two or three years, you know, it's snowing in Dallas, right? Dogs are you know mating with cats. You know, I mean, anything's possible in 2021. Anything is possible. Rick Perlstein's book Reaganland was the best political book of 2020. Rick. Thanks for talking with us today. Not about Los Angeles, John. <laughs> Cheers. Trump is now dividing and weakening the Republicans, but Biden and the Democrats still have to succeed at changing things enough to win new supporters. And now that impeachment is finished, Biden's Pandemic Recovery Act takes the center of the political stage. For comment on that, and on the longer-term problem of restoring American manufacturing, 
We turn to Alan Minsky. Of course, that's a name that's familiar to everybody who's been listening to this podcast because he's our producer here in L.A. He's also executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. That's a grassroots organization that works with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And he's written for TheNation.com. Alan Minsky, welcome. Great to be here, John. Well, before we get to the long-term economic picture, I'd like to take up one issue about the short term, the $15 minimum wage that progressives have been talking about for many years, which has been endorsed by Biden, which has been put into the pandemic relief bill. Just remind us, what is the federal minimum wage right now? Less than half of that. It's $7.25. It's very easy to make a living on $7.25 an hour if you have about 3,000 hours in a week. <laughs> well, I understand that the Congressional Progressive Caucus under its chair, Pramila Jayapal, worked hard to keep the $15 minimum wage in the House bill for pandemic economic relief. That bill is e emerging from committee, still subject to the whole House and then to the Senate. And in the Senate, Bernie Sanders has been working very hard on this bill for many, many years. How important is the $15 minimum wage for the progressive agenda? Oh, it's super important. Uh, as you may have heard, John, we have incredible um, maldistribution of wealth in our society. And this has been further exacerbated over the past year during the pandemic. The statistics that are available show that the top quarter of the population income earners have done pretty well. They've done and probably saved a lot of money too during the pandemic. The quarter below that, not so well. The quarter below that, worse. The bottom quarter, catastrophic, okay? And right now, we have working people unable to make ends meet. We have an epidemic of homelessness. And simply put, people are so underpaid for the labor they do at $7.25 an hour or anything below $15 an hour anywhere in the country, let alone the um, more expensive and you know, more economically vibrant, large metropolitan areas in the United States of America, like Southern California, where even $15 an hour is, is inadequate. But across the country, you know, you're really talking about just living, lifting uh, the minimum wage back up to the level, close to the level it was adjusted for inflation throughout much of the post-war period in the United States of America. Since it's been set at 725, it has fallen way below where it used to be in, in uh, inflation-adjusted dollars. It's absolutely impossible to make ends meet on that kind of money, and it's essential. Now, it is also super popular with the public across the country. Um, and so, as always, three cheers for Pramila Jayapal, Great politician, great political organizer, and great work making sure that this was included. So why is it even a question of whether this could be in the bill? Well, there are a few reasons, but one of the main reasons is because um, they want to get the bills passed. And this is maybe a classic example of the Democrats um, negotiating against themselves uh, in advance. But the idea that the minimum wage statute could not get approved by the Senate parliamentarian and thus be available in a package that would be passed through reconciliation. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Um, through regular order, with the threat of the filibuster, right, uh, the, the bill would need 60 votes. But why take it out 
even before you try to pass it through regular order. Again, this is a problem with the Democrats negotiating against themselves in advance. This was epidemic during the Obama years. But let's say it can only go through the Senate, through the process called reconciliation, by which you don't need 60 votes to clear the filibuster. But on measures related to the federal budget, you only need 50 votes with Kamala Harris then providing the tie-breaking vote, and it would pass. The question is, is the minimum wage a federal budgetary issue? Well, Bernie Sanders, who happens to be the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, <laughs> he weighed in and said, look, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, right, nonpartisan body, did a study and they declared exactly how this would impact the federal budget. So let's make sure we include this into the package because we can get it through reconciliation. So that's one of the main reasons people had said we got to take it out. Pramila Jayapal won the argument at the committee level. It's back in where it should be. Let's get this through right now. However, there's a new problem in the Senate. Kristen Sinema, the recently elected Democratic senator from Arizona, announced she will oppose including the $15 minimum wage in the pandemic relief bill. She says it's not about pandemic relief. That means that in the Senate, the $15 bill would have to go to a regular proposal, which would be subject to a Republican filibuster. And Kristen Sinema also says she opposes abolishing the filibuster. In that, she joins another Democratic senator, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who also opposes abolishing the filibuster and opposes the $15 minimum wage in any case. So right now, it looks like $15 won't survive in the Senate. But progressive groups in Arizona and West Virginia are pushing those two to change their positions. So we'll be following this in the weeks to come. In the meantime, raising the minimum wage remains, as you said, Alan, extremely popular. Two-thirds of the American public supports raising the minimum wage to $15. And that includes more than 40% of Republicans. And it doesn't just poll well. When it's been an initiative on ballots in states and cities, California, Washington pioneered this, Seattle pioneered it in Washington, but many states have now voted on it, most recently Florida. Whenever it's been on a ballot of a city or state, it has won. The increase in the minimum wage has won every referendum it's been put before the public with since 1998. The public wants this. Absolutely. And you know, John, if you are to receive $15 as a minimum wage, and um, you are to work 40 hours a week, uh, 50 weeks a year, how long do you have to work to earn a billion dollars if you have zero taxes <laughs> and zero expenditures? Have you ever done the math on that, John? I think this is a $15, $15 minimum wage. <laughs> I don't know. What's the answer? That 33, roughly 33,333 years. 33,000 333 years of working at minimum wage. Six, six times, more than six times the length of human history, basically. Now, if it's 725 an hour, that's above <laughs> 66,000 years. So we're, we're, we're really letting people have the capacity to dream here, to, you know, reach their, <laughs> become the, one of the billionaire class. And, and I think the only other thing I would add on the, on the $15 minimum wage is the number of people who would benefit from this. Apparently, it's it's tens of millions of people don't make $15 right now. Hey, that's, that is for sure. In fact, it would lift many people even out of poverty. 
Uh, though it's hard to imagine how you do that at $15 an hour. But in some places, you know, again, where the cost of living is left, I, I saw that at least a million people would be lifted out of poverty just from wow. this one measure, and it would help, yes, tens of millions of Americans. Again, this goes to working class communities, working class communities of color, and a lot of women, and women have especially been hit hard during the pandemic in terms of the impact on the economy. We will be following this closely in the weeks to come, but we also want to look at the big picture, the long-term problem of reviving American manufacturing. This is something that Biden has made part of his economic plan. He announced it back in July, and he's beginning to take the first steps now. His plan involves cracking down on outsourcing, investing billions in research and development to develop especially the next generation of green technology. And then he wants to connect those to a massive jobs and infrastructure program. He says his goal is 5 million new jobs in manufacturing. He started just a week or two ago with an executive order that requires the federal government to buy more goods produced in the United States. The federal government, of course, is a huge market buys, spends something like $600 billion annually on contracts. But of course, for many years, that's been open to foreign companies to bid on and lots of foreign companies can undersell American companies. So this should bring back a lot of outsourced manufacturing. Is forcing the federal government to buy American a good place to start on reviving American manufacturing, do you think? It's the the single largest purchaser in the world is the United States federal government. And so it's a great place to start. And um, U.S. manufacturing is down to about 11 percent of GDP. Um, That's as low as countries like Afghanistan at this point. It used to be up at about a quarter of GDP uh, or even higher than that back in the period around and right after World War II. Uh, We all know that there's been a huge exodus of manufacturing and just how uh, much manufacturing anchors a country. First of all, we saw it in terms of the social necessity of it around the supply chains related to the top of the pandemic, where you weren't seeing any of these essential materials be produced within the United States. So it addresses those problems. But if you look at the countries in the global economy that are really stable, uh, let's leave China out of it, That because that's not stable only because it's grown so fast due to manufacturing anchoring its, uh, its economy. But if you look at a country like Germany, which has maintained its manufacturing base uh, with a very prosperous, stable middle class society with very good social indices, you know, it's, it's really sort of old school capitalist theory, John. If you have capital investment in something like manufacturing, while it's true over the past four decades, there have been a lot of people exiting But if you put the investment into setting up a manufacturing shop, that's a stable source of jobs um, and productivity in communities. People understand that. And the United States of America now has vast parts of the country that have the infrastructural setup to be able to be a part of the supply chain and they're absent actual manufacturing shops. So this is a very, very promising sign that the Biden administration is highlighting this. Donald Trump really did bring the question of failed American manufacturing more foregrounded into the American political consciousness than recent politicians. And it's important that the Democratic Party and Joe Biden not only now maintain that sense of it being a priority, but actually do something unlike Trump 
And I think that's this is a really good start from Joe Biden. What's your assessment of emphasizing um, infrastructure repair and expansion as a generator of jobs and of stable manufacturing jobs, not just temporary construction jobs? Okay, well, okay, first of all, the American energy grid needs to be completely reconfigured into renewable and sustainable energy. This is a massive society-wide industrial project. Um, Now, what achieves that is, of course, an expansion of certain forms of energy production, uh, and they require new parts. The parts that got made, probably 85, 75% of them, they're not going to be distinct factories. They're going to be the widgets that are made in, you know, basically high-tech um, construction, right? So who's going to produce those parts? Who are going to produce the parts for the supply chain? This can be the expansion of pre-existing manufacturing industries in the United States. And of course, also the establishment of new shops. And then a good portion of it is new technology, which will have to be newly developed at new shops. Now think about it in terms of the power of the American economy and how significant it is if this country leads the way in the manufacturing of the renewable and sustainable energy systems and all of the component parts that go into it relative to other countries in the world. This will be something that can anchor prosperity through a revitalized manufacturing base with good paying jobs. And by the way, these are high tech jobs. These are not your grandparents' manufacturing jobs. You know, this involves often state-of-the-art AI and robotics in terms of just the running of the manufacturing. Um, There also are very dynamic aspects of design that go into the component parts for these incredible machines that we're talking about to build renewable energy systems. This means there really should be a whole new wave of vocational training, maybe at the community college level, at the high school level too. Again, these are not boring jobs. And by the way, there are all sorts of great uh, strategies to make these workplaces really anchored by uh, either entrepreneurs, and I'll get to something even more exciting for the left in a moment, who are very committed to the communities where the shops are being. We, we know the history. We know the history of the offshoring. Well, now we have an opportunity to really work with entrepreneurs who are committed to high wage jobs. Where we, can, we can really encourage as the left that these be unionized jobs. Um, and then there's also the prospect of, and then, you know, we understand you got to raise the money to get something going, but there's the possibility of worker, worker ownership And there's also the possibility of worker ownership in shops where the old old ownership is wanting to move off or sell. And as opposed to selling and offshoring, that the workers can get involved in buying up the businesses and running them as worker cooperatives or worker collectives. This is an idea that is increasingly popular, and there are ways that this can be incentivized, too, through public policy. PDA has a partnership with an organization called Manufacturing Renaissance out of Chicago, that is absolutely experienced with the real-world effort to save existing manufacturing businesses in Chicago, which there are still thousands in the greater Chicago area. A lot of them, again, are looking for new ownership, and you can have worker ownership. You can have ownership from uh, entrepreneurs from communities of color because the ownership is still overwhelmingly white. Um, and so there's all sorts of ways that this can, this can grow in progressive ways that can really help communities around the country. And Chicago is one place like that. There are places all across the Rust Belt. And also, there is the issue of the oil and gas industry workers and their need for a just transition out of jobs that should go the way of the dinosaur. Uh, So like a a double 
uh, fossil fuel metaphor there, but it should go the way of the dinosaur. And, and these people need jobs. They're being told that the environmental movement is promising a just transition. Well, renewal of manufacturing targeted into the communities that are losing gas and oil jobs is a really important strategy uh, that labor unions can get behind, workers can get behind, communities can get behind. And I do think this is all something that the Biden administration is grasping. And I finally, I need to ask about the calendar, the time that all this is going to take in relation to the political calendar. Of course, we're already thinking about the midterm elections. Midterm elections, almost every time the party in power uh, loses seats in Congress. It's certainly possible, probably likely, that Democrats will lose this control of the Senate, and they even could lose control of the House where they don't have a very big margin. What would make a difference is big progress on jobs, on financial aid, and on, dare I say, progress towards restoring manufacturing. Do you think this can happen fast enough to affect the 2022 midterms? Well, it could. And first of all, the 2022 midterms in the Senate actually don't line up that poorly for the Democrats. You have open seats in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and now Ohio. Of course, one of the great champions of all of this is Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio. With him taking the lead, that could really put the wind in the sails of the Democratic nominee to replace in the election to replace Rob Portman, outgoing Republican senator from Ohio. In the House, of course, you're absolutely right. We have to show that there are policies from the Democratic Party that really boost the, the, pot, the, the prospects for working class Americans. Here's the thing. The next big moment for this is the infrastructure plan. That is the Recovery Act. You're going to see a combination National Infrastructure and Recovery Act that probably will be dropped and introduced to the world, dropped on and introduced to the world hours after the Relief Act that we spoke about in the first half of this interview passes through Congress. So the Biden administration is undoubtedly already working on uh, what will be in the Infrastructure and Broad Pandemic Recovery Act. The two are going to be combined. So right away, we're talking about green infrastructure. We're talking about reviving American manufacturing. And it speaks direct. If we can achieve on this front, yes, it will do wonders for the midterm. Alan Minsky, he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Alan, great to have you on the show. Always great to be with you, John. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to the nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. 
D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.